You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. I'm going to be talking to Milton Berg of Milton Berg Advisors. He is what I would call the turning point master in that he takes the data, the technical analysis of market data, and has been very pressing in the past to be able to call market turns. The question now is, are we at one of those points? Have we passed one of those points where a bear market that ended in March has turned into a bull market? The data say yes, but Milton, in terms of his judgment over a career that spans almost 50 years, he has a very different view. And I think it'll be a very interesting conversation to talk to him and talk through what the data are saying and what he thinks is happening in the markets. I'm going to call you the turning master, if you don't mind, Milton, today. Well, okay. <laughs> Might as well, but uh, I'm not the greatest turning master anymore. Well, <laughs> this is a really difficult uh, experience that we're going through in terms of dealing with turns. Because, you know, you and I, I think we spoke maybe two weeks ago about some of the indicators uh, that you, that you look at and looking at it in terms of is is this the same indicator that we have for equities or is it more of a commodity like uh, situation? We can right. talk about this uh, in terms of the bull and bear cases for where we are right now uh, post uh, uh, March uh, liquidity crisis. But I want to sort of contextualize the whole thing on two levels: one, in terms of you know what's the macro picture but also in terms of thinking about it in terms of fundamental versus uh, technical analysis. Because you talked to Grant uh, on Real Vision about a year ago, and one of the things I found very useful was what you were talking about, uh, Benjamin Graham, and that he actually, at the end of his career, became a technical um, uh, analyst. And this is something that- No longer is rigorous security analysis necessary. Just look at published numbers, that's all you really need. Right. And so talk to me about uh, you're having got, had gotten a CFA and then suddenly uh, moving and saying, wait a minute, um, my edge is actually technical analysis. Well, I got a CFA. I didn't know much about technical analysis and I didn't really uh, believe in it because I knew nothing about it. But I got my CFA. I did rigorous security analysis, but it's very difficult to get an edge. I was competing against you know, thousands and thousands of other fundamental analysts. And there was nothing I could, I really couldn't say that I had an edge over anybody else. And I discovered, uh, accidentally, actually, at a meeting of the New York, New York uh, Society of Security Analysts, they had a technician speak. It actually was Ned Davis. And, uh, he didn't have Ned Davis research yet at that time. It was uh, J.C. Bradford. I'm just fascinated by the fact that he's able to make market decisions based on data that have nothing to do with value, nothing to do with price earnings ratios. Just had to do with sentiment or momentum or monetary policy, which is really nothing to do with the individual companies. So I thought that was fascinating. And then I spent the rest of my career creating my own proprietary, uh, call it technical indicators, I like to call it market-based indicators as opposed to uh, fundamental or value-based indicators. 
And, you know, when uh, when I watch the uh, financial news, at the end of the day, they say the market was up or the market was down because of X, Y, Z. Um, but is that really how it works when you think of it from a technical analysis perspective? Well, let me just give you an idea of, of why it's so difficult to say the market moved today because of X, Y, Z. Let's assume there's a large pension fund, uh, $100 billion sovereign fund, I want to invest $5 billion in, in a stock that has a market cap of $30 billion. They can't do it all in one day, right? It's going to take them one week, two weeks, three weeks, or four weeks. They're going to put a program to buy stocks. The news that takes place that day will not affect whether they buy stocks or not. They just have to buy the stocks. They started their program. They will continue. That is just one piece of evidence that suggests that you can't really blame the daily market moves on the daily, daily news. There's so many other factors involved in the supply and demand um, a picture in, in, in the stock market. Very often, there's a shift because consultants are telling you shift out of stocks, out of bonds into stocks. Institutions can't shift in one day. They're going to shift over three days, four days, five days, six months, and that's going to cause a trend. To suggest, that, like the monoportfolio theorists do, that daily movements are based on daily news is really very far from, from logical. Yeah, and so I mean, for me, that's the that's where technical analysis uh, comes into play in terms of when we're thinking about what's going on during this uh, global pandemic and uh, the reaction to it in terms of fiscal and monetary policy. But, you know, from a fundamental perspective, as I was telling you before, the way I'm thinking about it is, you know, we had a panic. Uh, the Fed staunched it out in March. Uh, we went into this lockdown. The economy went through a dive. The Fed came guns blazing, and now uh, the market's responded and is up, you know, almost 50%. The question is, is this a new bull market or is this just a bear market rally? And that's the question everyone has, and I want to talk to you about that from a technical analysis perspective. The, the first question, obviously, and I think that you uh, told me this before we got on, is about the Fed. It, it's about policy. What, what's going on there uh, that's, that's driving any of the action in the marketplace? Okay. Well, let me talk about the long-term action before we discuss the short-term action. Okay. It, it, is, it is common belief amongst Wall Street that the Federal Reserve has the ability to raise stock prices. If they lower rates, they, they do quantitative easing, stock prices go up. Now, let's look at history. The Japanese have been involved in quantitative easing for 30 years, 40 years. The Japanese stock market peaked in 1989, has never made a new high. But let's look, let's look a little bit closer to home. The Chinese stock market in US dollar terms peaked in 2015. China has been easing. In, in, um, in, in local currency terms, it peaked in 2007. Uh, Greece is down 90% from its peak in 2007, despite the fact that the Euro, uh, European um, central banks, have been doing, uh, I think they said, anything, anything it takes to, to goose the markets and to goose the economy. Uh, United Kingdom peaked in 2007, is down 43% in US dollar terms. Italy peaked in 2007, it's currently down 61% in US dollar terms. So to suggest that, uh, that the Federal Reserve, central banks have the ability to create bull markets is very, very strange. We are in a major worldwide bear market. It basically began at 2000, secondary top in 2007, we have yet to recover. And even looking at our market, you know, we're talking about a new bull market, the S&P small cap index peaked in 2018, as of yesterday's close, is down nearly 19% from its peak in 2018, which is two years ago. 
So the Federal Reserve has been easing, easing and easing and quantitative easing. So on a long-term basis, there's very little evidence that long-term bull markets are coincident with uh, loose monetary policy. There are many other facts involved other than Federal Reserve easing. On the other hand, when the Federal Reserve makes a major change in policy, in other words, they go from tightening to easing, or they go from easing to more easing, that serves as a shock to the system and bulls and gooses up stock markets for a short period of time. But I do not believe that, that the Federal Reserve movements have a true long-term effect on stocks. In other words, when the Fed eases, the same factors that get the stock market to rally are the same factors that get the economy to rally. If the S&P, if the Federal Reserve eases as they just did in, in, in 2020, and the stock market therefore rallied, but if it doesn't follow through with the gain in the economy, the stock market will not continue higher because the Federal Reserve does not have a direct ability to goose the stock market on a longer term basis. So what we have is step one, the Fed panicked, the Fed eased, the Fed uh, raised, uh, increased the balance sheet to, to what is it, $9 trillion. The markets rallied. Well, will this affect the economy? We don't know. I, I tell you, I'm, I'm very confused by the following. Interest rates are at record lows. Interest rates at record lows are suggesting that the markets don't expect inflation. And on the other hand, when the Federal Reserve increases the money supply and the Federal Reserve increases its balance sheet, they're trying to create inflation. Gold and silver are rallying in anticipation of that inflation that the Fed is creating. Well, if the Fed is creating inflation, why would the long-term interest rates be 1% or so? It should be up 3 4 5%. So there are some conflicting factors going, going, going in the markets today. We're trying to analyze it. We're trying to figure it out. The most likely answer is that off the March lows, the shock of the Federal Reserve and central banks rolling and doing what they do gave liquidity into investors' hands. So anything they buy is going to go up in value, be it bonds, be it stocks, be, being, it, being it silver, be it gold, be it junk bonds. That will not last forever. The only question is, what will the next turn be? Will it be a deflationary turn where silver and gold go back down, stocks go back down, and yields remain low? Or will it be a, an inflationary turn where, where yields start turning up and stocks continue higher and gold and silver continue higher? And that's the kind of information uh, we're, we're looking at and we're grappling with at this point. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. I think that's a great uh, summary of where we are. And, and, and now we can start looking at some of the charts and you can explain some of the technicals that might tell us, you know, what the answer is. Because when I look at some of the charts that you sent me and, uh, and that we're going to talk about, the date that, that stands out in my mind is June the 8th. June the 8th, 2020 uh, is, a, is a date on a lot of those charts. And that's in the past. Uh, you know, that's two two months ago from, from now. So right. talk to me about that date. Why does that date matter? Well, let's talk about June 8th. It, it just, let's just look at market action since June 8th. Okay. The S&P is up 2.88% since June 8th. Not a great move. It's made a minor new high. The Dow is down 1.16%. The New York Stock Exchange is down 1%. S&P small caps are down 2%. Mid caps are down 1%. UK is down 8%. Uh, Russell is, is up 0.7%. The CAC in Paris is down 6%. The Nikkei is down 3.55%. So while it feels that the markets have been breaking out because these great FANG and NASDAQ stocks are up 9% since June, 
In reality, most markets worldwide and most stocks worldwide somehow peaked on June 8th. Now, what took place on June 8th to get the markets to peak? Well, one thing you have to realize is that the Fed balance sheet peaked on June 10th. I don't know if people are aware of that. Fed balance sheet is down nearly $300 billion from its peak on June 10th. So while the Fed is trying to talk the market up, talking about expanding the balance sheet, the reality is they expanded the balance sheets from March to June, to June 10th. And subsequent to June 10th, the balance sheet is slowly, slowly declining. It doesn't have to decline. It's just not increasing. And I think that's having a direct effect on markets. As they said, on a short-term basis, Fed action does move markets. And if the whole movement in the capital markets were based on a loosening Fed, where the Fed stops loosening and even the balance sheet just stops growing, it goes down some 200 to $300 billion, that's enough to peak markets. That's number one. But number two is, you're so something else on June 8th. Mm. A tremendous, and when I say June 8th, not necessarily that date, June 8th, June 10th, June 11th, it's sort of mid-June. So a tremendous speculation in markets. Let me give you an example. We've studied all market crashes, panic-like crashes in history. Now, we had one in March. I say we had one in March because the NASDAQ declined some 30% in, in about a month. NASDAQ five-day volume was its greatest in history. And that sort of compares with the type of crashes we saw in 1987, where the market was down 32% in a little bit over a month with the highest five-day volume in history. And so to in 1929, the market declined some 50% over a short period of time. And it bottomed basically with the highest five-day volume in history. Now, let's look at the highest five-day volume in history. The five-day volume in 1929 remained record for 32 years. The five-day volume in 1987 remained a record for eight years. The five-day volume into the so-called crash, so-called capitulating panic in 2020 has lasted for three and a half months. Because on June 8th, that period, the week of June 8th, NASDAQ volume was 30% greater than it was, five-day volume was 30% greater than it was at the lows. Now, how could we even say we had a capitulative low in, in March if the, one of the greatest signs of a low is panic volume when you saw greater volume to the upside? I'm interpreting to suggest that you're seeing panic volume to the upside, which we call capitulation to the upside, which is something very typically seen in commodities markets. Commodities markets don't bottom on high volume. Commodities markets generally peak on spike action and high volume. And that is the reasons for it. We don't have to get into the reasons at this point. But basically, let's just say that people are forced to cover shorts in commodities and, uh, and people are, are so excited about the, uh, there'll no longer be oil on the ground, peak oil or, uh, or there's, uh, you know, silver is being, uh, being uh, um, uh, there's, there's no more supply for silver and so on. So it forces them to buy the commodity. I think we saw that in NASDAQ. I think this fang uh, craziness, where the value of the six greatest stocks in NASDAQ is greater than all European indexes combined, plus Mexico and Canada, you take the value of the Canadian index, the Mexican index, and all European indexes combine them, you have six stocks in America that have a greater market value than all those markets. So I think this is a commodity-type move in these, these stocks. Yes, they're great companies, and yes, they have great earnings. But, you know, RCA was a great story in 1929. It was a great company with great earnings, a great future. They, they made radio, ultimately they made color television. That stock didn't, create, didn't get to a new high for another 25 years. I'm not suggesting we're having that type of situation. I'm just trying to say people are caught up in NASDAQ as evidenced by the great increase in five-day volume. But it's not just NASDAQ. You know, the SP small cap index generated its highest volume in history in the week of June 8th. 
Right. And that was 39% greater than the panic volume we saw in, in, at the March lows. There's something going on in this market that is not normal, is not being recognized. Now, one can argue, and it's a very common and logical argument, that this volume is breakaway volume. This is a volume suggesting that a new bull move is beginning. For right. example, in January of 1987, we saw the highest volume in history on a five-day basis as the market was breaking out of the trading range, gaining 30% to its final high in August. But we're not seeing breakaway action. I started this interview listing all those indices that are still below the level of June 8th or just slightly higher than the level of June 8th. We're not seeing breakaway action. We're actually seeing reduction in advanced decline uh, um, indicators. We're seeing uh, uh, the, the peak in the 10-day AD line took place on June 8th. The peak in the 30-day AD line took place on June 8th. The peak in 12-day volume took place on June 8th. And what's following through is it rather rather than a breakaway, is actually correction. I'll give you an example. The SP small cap index declined 14% in the two weeks post-June 8th. The, the Dow declined 9% and the Russell declined 13%. The SP declined 7%. So you didn't get the follow through. You see when you see this type of volume. That volume is tapering off, which is really suggestive that that was probably what you call the internal peak of the market. It was happening since then, may well just be testing highs. I'll give you a great example in history. Uh, March 24th, 2000, when the SP peaked and the NASDAQ peaked roughly the same day, not quite the exact same day, took place on the highest volume in history. The market ultimately, ultimately, uh, six months later in August and September, tried to make a new high. The SP got within 1% of the high in March, never broke out and it failed. NASDAQ didn't get that close to the high, but the uh, New York Stock Exchange Index made a minor new high in early September of 2000, of the year 2000. We're seeing similar action now where the market the market made a peak in, in, in February. As peaks within 2% of its peak, everyone's so excited about it. The Dow is, is significantly below that. Uh, the Russell 2000, as I said, is, is way below that. The SP small cap is 18% below where it was in, 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 in 2000 and, uh, 2018. So this, to me, looks like bear market action. The volume we're seeing is commodity-like. The volume we're seeing is speculative. I'm not as convinced as everybody that the Federal Reserve is going to be able to goose the markets any higher. And in fact, let's face it, I think there's some rational space in these guys' brains. I, I think they're still, I think they haven't turned our money into wampa money. I think they're trying to convince themselves that what they're doing is rational and what they're doing it makes sense. And I don't think uh, Mr. Powell is going to turn our uh, republic into the Weimar Republic with hyperinflation or Zimbabwe. I think he's going to restrain himself somewhat. I think when he talks about we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates, what he means to say is until the data tells us that there's inflation, Economic growth, we won't raise rates, but that's fine. What he's saying is we'll get, we'll get a deflation, we'll get a depression, and I'll be lowering rates. That's fine. But he's conceding to the fact that we could get a depression and deflation. He's not saying we already have this market under control. He's not saying we have the economy under control. He's actually saying the opposite. We're not even thinking about raising rates. Why is he not thinking about raising rates? Because he's aware of the fact that most likely the COVID decline is not a temporary decline. It's not like the bunker hunt silver market declined down 27% in three or four weeks because of the silver crisis. It's not like the 1987 crash, which really wasn't fundamentally related. It was technically related because of program trading, maybe because interest rates were up a little bit. It's more like the 1929 crash, where the market is anticipating depression. Now, the depression may have been caused by governments. I think it makes absolutely no sense to lock down the world. But let's say it did make sense. It's irrelevant. This is just politics. Let's say it made sense to lock down the world. Locking down the world is, is, is a, a, a very drastic measure. We've never done it before. 
We can't predict that the uh, outcome will be positive. We can't predict there'll be a V recovery. And we can't say that the stock market is telling us there'll be a V recovery. Of course, in 1929, the, the, the S&P 500 gained um, some 46% in 101 days. And then it led to a bear market. We've gained some 48% uh, through yesterday in some 90 days. And if it didn't tell us 1929 that, it, that the market's going to kill higher, it's not telling us the same information now as well. It was a uh, year of 46% of 101 days in 1929, 48% in 94 days currently. And guess what? I read the newspapers in March of 1929. The bulls were stating Fed is lowering rates and fiscal policy is stimulative. And guess what we're saying today? Fed is lowering rates, fiscal policy is stimulative. That's true. Does that mean that the sh world shutdown, which is continuing, is not going to have a dramatic effect, long-term lasting effect? I don't know. Delta Airlines doesn't believe it won't have a lasting effect. Neither does some of these banks who uh, have loaned money to people who can't pay them back. Uh, neither is the uh, 30 or 40 percent of the Russell 2000 companies that can't, um, that aren't showing earnings and really can't meet any debt payments if you have to make debt payments. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pessimistic on the technical side and even somewhere on the fundamental side. And it just I, it hits me that the markets basically peaked along with the balance sheet on June 10th of uh, 2020. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Very well stated in terms of the bear case, and uh, but I know that uh, that you have an even-handed uh, look at this as well because you know the first chart that you sent me I thought was really interesting was the buy indications in June and July of 2020. Uh, you know, in terms of the S and P 500 five-day breath, the S and P 500 uh, 60-day new highs. Right. The, the uh, NYSE 12-day net, net up volume as a percentage of total volume. Can we go through some of these yes. and talk, yes. talk to me about what these indicators would yes. say and why perhaps uh, some of them are telling you uh, the opposite, that, uh, wait a minute, uh, here is the, the bull case, so to speak. Yes. Well, let me just tell you, be very frank and very honest. We uh, have a proprietary database of over 30,000 indicators. We've tracked every bull and bear market since, um, since 1928 in the S&P 500 and other markets as well. We have um, never seen the type of decline we saw in March of this year. Uh, the type of oversold indicators that create bottoms did not create a bottom. They started sealing in February. The oversold indicators that create bottoms started sealing in February didn't work. We've had 134 buy signals since the March 23rd lows, 134. I, to you, when I sent you the chart, it's focused on the 17 that took place since June. But uh, we have 134 buy signals, and uh, I can't say I acted upon these buy signals properly. I can't say I analyzed my data properly. But I would say that based on the momentum of the market, based on the type of action off the lows, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of action that takes place early on in bull market moves. No one can doubt that. Look at the lows off the 1974 lows. Look at the low, look at the market off the 1982 lows. Look at the market even after the December 1987 lows. This type of action, upside action is a type of action that takes place 
early on in bull moves, I'd be a little bit more specific. And I will try to tell you why I'm skeptical. Let me just tell you one reason I'm skeptical. Okay. There's a very famous indicator that many people use. We have uh, 12 versions of this indicator. Most people use one version. And that is a 10-day breath thrust. What is a 10-day breath thrust? You look at, say, the New York Stock Exchange Index. You see how many stocks are up on the day, on day one, on day two, and how many are down. They want two for 10 days. So you look at the 10-day breath thrust. The New York Stock Exchange on June 5th had 1.9 to 1 upside breath over a 10-day period. That's taken place 17 times in history. Of these 17 times in history, the median maximum return over the next 12 months has been nearly 25%. Now, just to give you the facts, on a random daily basis, the median maximum return in the S&P 500 over the next 12 months is 13.61% on any random day. So by virtue of the fact that this one indicator with 17 historical instances has shown a median maximum return of nearly 24%, tells you this is a very potent indicator. However, there's something very strange about this signal. This signal on June 5th, the market bottomed on March 23rd or so, right? So you have March, April, May, it's two and a half months from the time of the market bottom until you get this breath thrust. Well, lo and behold, I looked at the 17 instances in history, and most of them, the majority of them, I mean, 90% of them take place within two weeks of the low. A 10-day breath thrust takes place within the first 20 days of the low, sometimes within the first nine days of the low. We got a 10-day breath thrust nine days after the December 2018 low. Now you got the 10-day breath thrust into a June 8th peak or June 5th. This is telling me commodity-like action. This type of upside pressure should have taken place off the low. In this case, his upside pressure took place after the market was already up 50% in some indices. Very, very strange. So it's a bullish indicator, yet I'm skeptical. Now, I always try to teach myself, just follow the indicators and don't be skeptical. The problem was that the March decline was very atypical. The February March decline was very atypical. I saw many indicators that worked in the past on the downside not work. And now I'm seeing commodity type action. I'm seeing indicators acting different than they should, should act. Anyway, that's one indicator which I suggested was very bullish. It is very bullish, uh, and um, I, I can't argue that it's bullish. I'm trying to give a caveat. This signaled not within two weeks of the low. It's actually signaled you know, two and a half months after the low. Very, very, very strange. It's more likely commodity-type speculative action. And, and talk to me then about why it is that you think – I mean, because I, I think uh, the, the way that you were putting it is, is that you ha- in commodities, you see high volume – at the highs. And high right. momentum and high momentum at the highs. Exactly. The greatest momentum takes place off the lows. They used to call it the glory glory points, the first five years of the low. When I was doing the business, they called it the glory points. You know, marks up five, six, seven, eight, ten percent first five days of the low. Commodity just the opposite. Look at the gold and silver currently, right? Gold and silver are showing the greatest momentum now after the market has based six for six months. Commodities act totally different than stocks, and now stocks are acting, in my opinion, like commodities. Yeah, and so the question is: Is why is that? What do you think has happened to the market structure that would cause uh, stocks to suddenly act more like commodities than than well, equities? I could blame it on the Fed, partially, but you gotta have to blame it on psychology. Basically, we've been taught, and we've seen that anytime a market goes up, down, it goes right back up. We've been taught by dips. We've been uh, 
The, the Fed has been our put. We even created products that would have been unheard of decades ago, ETF products, leveraged three-to-one ETF products, VIX trading products. I mean, we, 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 we create products. I mean, I, I'm a free market capitalist. I don't believe you should have the SEC monitoring what kind of, uh, uh, what kind of um, instruments are created. But I also don't believe that the Federal Reserve should buy ETFs or try to bail out junk bonds. <laughs> so we have a very, very, very strange situation where the capital markets have created leveraged, leveraged types of uh, ETFs. The banks have uh, in derivatives up to kazoo. Uh, people understand stocks as pieces of paper or just chips on a computer as opposed to real companies that have to do something for you or pay you a dividend. Dividends don't count anymore. You know, we used to look for five, six, seven percent dividend stocks. Now, if you, you're yielding more than the 0.6 of the, of the 10-year treasury, you're considered a high-yielding stock. It, 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 things have changed. So I think it, what's created to commodities is, is both the new structures and new programs, ETFs. With one click of a button, you're buying 500 stocks or 1,500 stocks. And the fact that psychology tells people not to worry about individual companies, just look at the markets, and if it comes down, it's going to go back up. And it's probably... Uh, more information than I can uh, figure out, but it, it's definitely acting commodity-like. And my indicators, it's reflected in my indicators. I'm seeing so many more signals, for example, of the March 23rd low than we've seen of any other low in history that we've, we've tracked. Again, we tracked every low in history. We're seeing more buy signals now. That, I mean, we've seen the same signals in the past, but some signaled in 74, some signaled in 82, some signaled in, in, in 62. But now we're seeing all these signals taking place within a three or four month period. Something is very, very different. You can argue that it's very, very bullish. Now I can give you the bullish argument, and this is something troubling right. me. Maybe we are heading for a Zimbabwe. Maybe we are heading for a, 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 a Weimar Republic where you have to own stocks and you have to own gold and you have to own silver, but you certainly don't have to own long-term treasuries. So, there's reason to think we may, may be headed to hyperinflation. I personally believe that the, the, the risk is still deflation. I think the Federal Reserve understands the risk is still deflation. But if we're headed for that type of hyperinflation, then the stock market will become commodity-like. And this type of volume we saw will not top the market, even though it's greatest in history and it's 39, 30 to 35% greater than what the March lows. This is just the, the beginning of a long extended hyperinflationary move. I don't buy it. Well, you know, uh, the one thing that you said that really had resonance for me in terms of the psychology there uh, was something that points to passive investing for me. That is, is, is that, you know, irrespective of what happens in the market, there's a, there's a flow, there's a bid into the market uh, as a result of people buying the dips, you know, for their 401ks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How much do you think that contributes to the potential commodity-like uh, buy signals that or uh, that you're seeing? Well, it's interesting that you you, you bring this up. Pe people who buy on a program, meaning every April they put their 401k money into the stock market, these people will, cannot turn them into commodity-like. It's actually the people who trade on the margin. People are looking at the stock market as a way to make money, as a way mm. to outperform the market. These are the people that create you know create a commodity it's not the producers of of, of copper and it's not the consumers of copper that turn copper into commodity which with major swings it's not the consumers of sugar it's not the producers of sugar it's the speculators that want to capitalize on these moves so i don't believe necessarily that it's the 401k type investor turn commodity i think it's people thinking or being convinced 
And anytime this market goes down, it's going to go up. And anytime it's going to go up, it's going to go higher. And even if you get a correction, even if it's 30%, which we had in March, it's going to go right back up. I think the, the speculative juice is flowing. And, I, you know, interesting, you I mentioned speculative juices and, uh, you know, in this argument because we've also seen something very interesting in, in, in June, which is very, very surprising. And that is the 10-day uh, te put-call ratio. Now, a put-call ratio basically tells you when people buy puts, they're expecting the market to decline. We buy calls, they're expecting the market to rally. It's a very short-term instrument, very speculative. And normally, it's sort of a balance between call buying and put buying. But this year, on June 23rd, put-call ratio, I believe, was the low year. It was 0.43 on a 10-day basis on July 21st. Lowest rating since September 7th, 2000. Speculative juices. Put call ratios low, the buying calls rather than puts. Now, it's interesting. I said it's the lowest reading since September 7th, 2000. As you know, the New York Stock Exchange made its final bull market peak that week, September, the first week of September 2000. And we're seeing the same type of put call ratio now that we're seeing then. And we have a very similar market now that we had then. Then you had a crash in NASDAQ in, um, in, in March and April, and then a recovery. You had a, and I can't say a crash in the S&P down 14%, but then you had a recovery in September. And we have the same situation. We had a crash in March, and we have a recovery, new highs in NASDAQ. And people are so convinced that it's going higher that the put call ratio is back to where it was in 2007. Yeah. So this is there, there are a lot of speculative juices flowing, and people are arguing, you know, that there are some uh, uh, sentiment indicators that are suggesting people are negative. But I, I clearly see positive sentiment, not necessarily on the part of hedge fund investors, not necessarily on the part of the typical retail investor, but the, the people who are out there trying to find a place to make money are throwing the money into the stock market, into ETFs, into leverage ETFs, into gold, into silver, and even into bonds and junk bonds. So I, I still think you have that commodity-like flavor in this market. Again, we could be wrong. These speculators turn, could turn out to be right. And you know, uh, something that you said uh, was uh, was interesting with regard to what I would call bifurcation in the market. Uh, we've been talking about this a lot on Real Vision. Um, you mentioned the 10-day breadth uh, in June, that indicator that this was a, a, a number that if you look out, you know, I think it was 20 months that you said you had an average uh, return of 24%. But earlier in the broadcast, you were talking about uh, the June, um, the the... the global indices from June. Actually, on average, they're down. Only right. the NASDAQ that you quote had a considerable right. uh, uptick. Only from considerable uptick is NASDAQ, right, which is very non-typical. There's another indicator we look at. This is the, 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 the you know, there's 17 instances where the 10-day where the, um, uh, advanced decline line gave a buy signal going back to 19, early 1970s, and it's a very potent signal. But there's another signal I have, which looks as 12-day upside volume. 12 of the upside volume. Now, here I actually have the table. I'll find it in a minute. 12 of the upside volume versus downside volume gave a signal exactly on June 8th. Historically, it only happened five times in the past. It's been a very, very, very potent signal. And I give you the uh, statistics. Uh, the market has gained media maximum gain within 12 months of 25.04%. The maximum drawdown in all five historical instances from the day of the signal was 0.79%. So when you have a 12-day upside volume versus downside volume, and the exact statistic I, I don't have it in front of me, I think it's a net reading of plus 40%, but that's not really important. Important is a very rare indicator. It's signaled five times in history. It, it, the median maximum gain within 12 months at 25%. It never had a drawdown of more than 0.79%. In this market, 
Russell declined 13%, small caps declined 14%, Dow declined 9%, S&P declined 7%. Only the Nasdaq did not decline, it, it continued higher, and, 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 the, and the worldwide markets basically peaked, many of them peaked on that date. And the AD line peaked in that date. In other words, although the Nasdaq's at a new high, the, the advanced decline line and the New York Stock Exchange equities only is not at a new high. So um, it's it's kind of strange. I hope I, I think I'm making my case a little bit clear that although uh, although things look bullish, maybe they're not as bullish as they seem. Yeah, I, I think you are making it. And let me see if I can uh, sum up how I'm I'm thinking about it now that you you presented the case. Um, so we we had a a panic in March. Uh, the Fed came in guns blazing as a result. Uh, that had a short-term impact as it has done in the past, but that impact, uh, it crested in the beginning of, of June. Their balance sheet has, uh, has rolled off since that time. And interestingly enough, at that exact same time, suddenly a, a, a plethora of uh, buying indicators came forward. But the price action since that happened has not been in accordance with uh, prior price actions that we've seen. The drawdowns have been larger than you would see uh, in previous past. And so as a result, you're looking at this as not the typical bullish indicator uh, from June, but rather as a commodity-like bearish indicator. And that in in all likelihood, uh, we're going to see a another leg down to this uh, this market. Yes, well, and I would say that some of these indicators that signaled in June should have signaled in April. In other right. words, these advanced decline thrusts, these volume thrusts, the double nine to upside day thrusts, is another great indicator when the New York Stock Exchange upside volume versus downside volume is greater than nine to one for two days in a row. In our case, it was 13 to one and 30 to one. That uh, that has signaled seven times in history. The median maximum gain within 12 months is 25.54%. But these usually signals coming out of a consolidation or right off a low, you know, within two weeks off a low. It hasn't happened. It didn't happen until, until June. Why? Why? Something is different. Something is very, very different. And I'm skeptical. Now, you know, I, I wouldn't say you use the term, it's most likely the market's going to have another leg down. I wish I could say it's most likely. I'm having difficulty in assessing probabilities. Looking at the data alone, looking at the buy signals alone, you'd have to say probabilities are the market headed much higher. Looking at the 134 buy signals we have since March, as the probabilities are that we're going to get out of this recession, we're going to have an amazing booming market, we're going to go up 25, 30, 40% over the next 12 to 18 months. That's what you have to say based on the indicators. But I don't want to fight my indicators. But I've been in the business a long time. I, I know what the Fed does. I know what the Fed tries to do. I know they, how the economy works. I've seen panics before. I see panics. I mean, I'll give you a, a great example of a panic. The, the great president, Jimmy Carter, one of the first things he did in office is put on a sweater. And he told everyone to lower the thermostats. You want to save energy. You know, that was, if you recall that. Yeah, I do. The second yeah. thing he did in office was he told you, he, he, he asked the U.S. citizens, please, please, please stop using your credit cards. And of course, at least half the country that voted for him stopped using the credit cards. And the market had a mini panic that lasted for two weeks. I think took the market down nearly 25%. Congress basically said, no, use your credit cards. We want you to use your credit cards. The market went right back up. This is not what happened with COVID-19. The, the government shut down the economy. They're still talking about, especially the, I don't want to make it political, 
but, but at least half the country that didn't vote for our president wants to shut down the economy. And um, there's no V-turn. You can't just turn an economy on and off on a dime like that when you're going to do total lockdowns. You could do it, don't use a credit card, then use your credit card. That'll be a V-recovery. I look at it as a, on a free market, you give the information to the people. Now, at first, in March, we didn't know what kind of crisis we had. We were convinced, and I myself was convinced, that there are 2 million people in the United States will die within three months. That's what some of the uh, indicators were telling us. But now that we've had three, four, five months of this crisis, we should be able to stop this idea of total lockdown, not only get political, and say there are ways to prevent the elderly and the infirm and people with existing conditions. They should wear masks. They should be isolated. They shouldn't go to work. But you have to keep an economy going. Um, and that's just my view. But basically, I don't think you just shut it down and turn it back on. It just doesn't look like it anymore. And there's another reason for that. The Fed did just the opposite of what they should be doing. Excuse me, not the Fed, the fiscal authorities, the, the government. They're just the opposite of what she'd be doing. They created increasing debt. Debt is the poison of the economy. In other words, this crisis, instead of liquefying people, people say, hey, how am I going to liquefy my balance sheet to save myself from, uh, from further uh, deterioration in my financial situation? The government says, no, $3 trillion. We're going to borrow this money. And this, this can't have a positive long-term effect, although it could have a positive short-term effect. So as you see, I'm not pounding the table either way. I wouldn't say it's most likely we have a, a correction. I'm not pounding the table either way. I, I think COVID is a very serious crisis. I think uh, people have to protect themselves. I don't think that the, 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 the methods used uh, by governors and by mayors were, were the, the best, the optimal methods. I, I understand why they did that initially. I don't understand why four months into the crisis, you can't uh, sort of cherry pick on who to protect and who not to protect. I don't know why we can't do that. But in any event, um, I don't, I'm not that convinced that you can have a V recovery. You had a V recovery in stocks, seemingly, although that is also doubtful because, uh, as I said, looking at worldwide markets, uh, markets peaked in 2000, 2007, 2018. Uh, it, it's the five, six, seven stocks in the NASDAQ have a greater market cap than all European stocks, and including Mexico and Canada. And I don't believe that, that we're really in a healthy environment. I think we're in a, a stealth, long-term bear market. I think the uh, benefit of that has to be given to the, to the negative side. And um, uh, right now, you know, markets make it, some, some of this is making new highs. It's difficult to make this kind of a call. But at least what I do to my clients is I try to give them both sides of the, of the story. I give them my buy indicators. I tell them why I'm negative in the market. I tell them why this guy might be different. Maybe my judgment and whether to go long or short might not be correct, or maybe it will be wrong. But my clients should be sophisticated enough to see this indicated as a re, the, the, the viewers of real vision understand that not everything is always black and white. I'm a black and white type of guy. I like to make clear cut decisions. The market's going to go up. The market's going to go down. Um, it's not that clear cut at this point. But I, I do believe that the consensus is that the Fed saved the economy and the Fed saved the markets and we're going to go higher. And my view, based on my understanding of markets, understanding of the Fed, understanding of the economy is that we're going to creep further into the, the, in a deflationary crisis. Uh, the more debt's outstanding, the more deflationary things become. You know, you can kick the can down the road another three months. Maybe Congress today will pass, the, will pass the, another stimulus package, which is just uh, another temporary measure. Rents still have to be paid. Wages still have to be paid. People still have to pay down the debt. Students are going to pay down the loans. And if they don't, it'll be deflationary. Unless the Fed actually prints, I mean, literally prints like they did in Zimbabwe. I'm talking about literally prints using printing presses. I did in Venezuela, 
and then you can hyperinflation. But if you just create debt as a method of printing, it doesn't work. And the proof is, look at Japan. They've been creating debt since, two, since 1989. They have the greatest debt to GDP ratio in, in history of any country. And their uh, market peaked in 1989. Look at the European markets, peaked in 2000, 2007. Well, Mario Draghi says, I will do whatever it takes. He's done whatever it takes. But it hasn't been really sufficient because you really have to have an economy grow from the bottom up uh, through, uh, through, uh, through capitalist system where people go to work, people get jobs, people invest their capital, as opposed to the top down where you just throw wampum money at economies and expect economies to grow. Well, to be continued, we'll, we'll have to see how this, uh, how this pans out. I, I agree with you 100%, uh, Milton. It's, uh, it's hard to say uh, wh- where we're going to go from here based on the technicals, based on the fundamental factors. But uh, I really appreciate your coming on and talking to us and, and, and walking us through your analysis. Uh, come back again. once. I, the- I have so many more things to talk about. We'll have to do it again. I know I'm- right, definitely. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com